Um, you all remember that Mary asked for our prayers last week, and I'm so thankful to her that she mentioned it to us that she lost her niece, that her niece took her life the week before, and um, you had our hearts all week. Um, been in our prayers every day, um, and you'll continue to have them, um, both you and, and your sister and your niece. And um, this didn't come up last Monday, but it came up afterwards, so I'd like to make a prayer, pretty serious prayer request from me and Suzanne. You know the struggles that Christopher and Taylor have been having, and um, we've asked for your prayers, and we'll continue to count on them if you would please give them. Um, Kayla's been here with the kids. Christopher's been in Florida. He came because last week we got news that Kayla's uncle, her mother's brother, had committed suicide, took his life. Um, I don't want to go into the details. There was a long, sad, sad, sad story. Just addictions and just, I mean, it, it's not uncommon today. Um, anyway, his name was Jimmy, so um, I'd like to, um, a greater depth of seriousness for both um, young Gracie and for Jimmy and anybody else. Anybody, any other prayer requests tonight? I had no idea when we began that this would be a part of our life and I'm so grateful for it. Um, I know that we do this together. Well, certainly Jesse, if, if he needs. He's in our prayers every week. Well, thank you, Bob. So my son from kindergarten, She's been diagnosed, dying, yeah, battling, Bad. you know, fighting. Okay. A year or so. And she had a surgery this morning that um, didn't go the way they expected, and she thought it was kind of her last surgery, the final hurdle. Yeah. And um, I haven't talked to her, but I got news from her family, and you know, I, you know, I've woken up from surgery, and you just. You know, to wake up from surgery and be told that it didn't, right? You yeah. know, right? Yep. Yeah. Have the outcome you expected. It's yep. just so heartbreaking, and then it's not good. Yeah. So we don't know what is going to happen to her. She's just a friend, not a relative. Right. She yeah. yeah, just a long time. Okay. Friend we grew up together. In this context, I just said this a minute ago, and I hope I just hope this does not sound glib. Just hope. One of the reasons that I um, handed out this essay on Tolkien was because I was so taken with it, and it's 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 um, it deals with a theme close to my heart. Um, long time ago, you all are not going to remember, but I read a poem by um, Herbert. I'm going to read it again next week. I'm going to bring it. It's called Death, and it's a he's a 17th century metaphysical poet. He belonged to that same group of Dunn and Herbert and some other poets, Krishan, um, some others. And in this one poem, he's celebrating death. And you can read it, it's not glib, but it's a reminder that after Christ comes, death is something we're, 
were asked, the, the pagans had every reason to mourn, because that was it. Truly, I mean, just hold on, hold on to it. That was it. For Christians, it's not. There is life eternal afterwards, and we have a merciful God. Thank God. And so much of our struggles with death um, bring us to issues of faith for ourselves, how much we trust in Him, even with our own guilt or failings or sins. And so read this essay on mortality, because I, and it, it's certainly there in Tolkien, and it's, it's very much a part of all that we're reading. So I hope you will all take some consolation from it, some strength. I think it's a wonderful piece. Okay, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass, and for your presence through this day. What a great blessing. You are never not here, even if we forget it. Um, we get so preoccupied in the world, so taken up. How easy it is for us. We're natural creatures. It's, this is our home. For all the ways you are here, um, with all that you've said and done to give us comfort here, but also to call us to another world, which is our final home. How good you are. And what strength we take from you to know that that is our home. Um, increasingly, day by day, to let go of this world, to turn away from it, always to bring the love that you offered us to everything we do, as men and women, all of us, to offer that love in all that we do to, um, with each other. Um, um, thank you, Lord, um, for all of that. I ask a special prayer tonight for Nikki. Um, whatever disappointment she experienced after surgery, um, um, be with her, please, to um, take hope um, in you. Um, if, if any of us come to that point, um, how hard it is to accept death uh, for so many of us. Strengthen her to make a place for that, all of us to do that. Be with Jesse in, um, in what appears to be his last days. Um, that he was at the wedding. What a cheerful heart somewhere in him to be there. Um, what a great grace. Let all those who love him find some cheerfulness to share that he would have done such a thing to go to a wedding um, when his days are numbered. Um, I ask a special grace on um, Gracie, that young girl, um, and for Jimmy um, as well. Whatever of despair that was in them, however they were blinded or disappointed in the world, whatever God, whatever you they didn't know or couldn't turn to, um, you know their souls better than we. The struggles that they had far better than we do. Um, forgive them, please, their sins. Um, if there is a time in purgatory, let it be a time of learning to see the things they didn't see, to be glad. Um, um, to take hope in, the, um, in your promises, to trust in you, and finally to know the joy of being with you. Let that be for them. Ask a special prayer for um, Christopher and Kayla, special grace, and for Thomas and Vic, and for all of us. Um, <laughs> Reba says in the mansion, if you've gotten that far, it's the whorehouse that um, Montgomery goes to. 
We are all poor sons of a bitches. That's a wonderful line. We all, all struggle um, with um, the corruptions that surround us, that um, take their place in us. Um, help us to have good hearts in all that we do with you, to bring you to everything that we do. Um, help us especially to learn to see ourselves more clearly in these works that we're reading, to learn from them, um, to take an increased understanding of you back to the world in everything we do, a greater love. We offer these prayers, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. Amen. I underline that line you just said. I love it. In all of this that are read, I underline that line. <laughs> We're all poor sons of bitches. It's actually really fitting, I think, because... I, well, I don't want. No, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna wait till next week. I've got to wait because I want to ask you what you all think about Montgomery Snopes, whether you think he's changed. But I, that's ahead of us. So that's such an interesting chapter, the one that he does. Okay, we've got we've got a huge question to take up later. Um, but what I want to do tonight is. Um, Try to set the stage for the final work that we're doing on modernity. C.S. Lewis is coming up, and we're, we will be explicitly in a Christian world then. But for those of you who are here from the beginning, you know that we started with the Iliad and the Odyssey and the, um, the Aeneid, and then we went on to the Divine Comedy. And um, I didn't know whether we were going to get past the Middle Ages then. I was going to wait to see what people would think, but we're still here. But it was all pointing towards modernity. Here we are. Here we are. We're in the middle of a work that's contemporary. Um, it is showing us ourselves more clearly than Homer. Although I, you know, I believe that Homer sees everything about our world that I'm aware of um, when you read him well. But here we are in modernity. It's a very different world. And what I'd like to do for a few minutes is is tie up some of what we're doing because this will be our last work on modernity explicitly insofar as I set it out that way you know, a year or two ago. I wasn't sure we'd ever get to Fox. I wasn't sure anybody would be there. That you guys are still doing this truly is just amazing to me. You would have, you would have what's the word, endured Faulkner? <laughs> with, with all of his, can your Karen going? <laughs> Use a period every once in a while, like a, put a period, yes. Um, Why say it one page when you could take ten? <laughs> you haven't learned anything in all this time. Um, I hope one of the things you learn is that formal grammar is less important than a language that will render reality, whatever its form. Because we need, to, we need to work with words, and sometimes we can get caught in boxes in what we do with them. So these, these writers help us. Here's, here's some of the things. Just to recall, remember from the beginning I said that, that in, in certain great works of literature, there's a prophetic quality. And it's prophetic in this sense. It's not on the divine sense of revelation, the divine side of revelation. It's on the natural side. So in the natural order, I've been claiming all along, there are gifts given to certain poets who are able to look at a, at a human predicament 
and reveals something of it in a way that helps us to see something about ourselves and God. There's a prophetic element. So I don't mean by prophecy telling the future. I mean by prophecy helping us to see things that we don't see very well. That's been a fundamental concern from the beginning of our work. These poets help us to see things better, more clearly, than we can on our own. They're a gift to us. They're not writing for money. If they would, I don't think they'd have... They, they are gifts. They write because some love moves them to do what they do. So they're prophetic in the sense of showing us things in a way that helps us to see ourselves better. They also show us things we don't want to see. Those are two of the things that prophets from the old world did, always. If you look at the Old Testament prophets, um, all of them, Ezekiel, Elijah, all of them, they're doing the same. They keep showing the Jews things about things that they don't want to see. They're trying to help them see things about themselves that they don't see very clearly, and all of them in the light of God. And there's always been a God present in these works, even if he's not always visible, and that's been one of our current concerns to find him. This book, I believe, you have to wait to see what you guys think in the next week, because we'll finish Mink next week. I think it's, I, I myself am not aware of another modern work that reveals God as clearly as Faulkner does. But you'll have to, some of you may disagree with me on that. We'll see what you, what you all think, but stunning to me, absolutely stunning. So these works are prophetic. That's one of the most important things to take away from this. In the trilogy, we've been aware of what I'm calling an enveloping action. The what's taking place in the book is not peculiar to Jefferson. It's a part of something going on in the world at large. We, the, um, the story goes back to the First World War and the Second World War. Something's happening in the world. A radical change to, is taking place that takes us beyond the kinds of wars that were fought throughout history. Um, um, we, we see that in a major way when Gavin goes to Germany and he says that Germany that he once knew is no longer there. We can go to some countries and see that, and this Ger Germany was a European country. I mean, it changed after the Reformation, obviously. One of, one of, the, one of the things you can see about Germany up to the Re Reformation is they really did not receive that European culture, that classical Greek-Roman culture that had influenced the the, sh the shape and development of Western culture, of European culture. Germany was always on the fridge of that. But they changed, it changed, Germany changed. And the change that um, Germany undergoes is symptomatic of a larger chain. Part of that we, we, we think of in terms of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment ideas that entered the West after the scientific revolution, where people begin to think that reason can explain everything and we don't need faith. The, the monasteries, the churches are closed. Remember when we read um, Gerard Manley Hopkins' poetry, the, the nuns who were killed in the wreck of the Deutschland. The, the monasteries were closed in Germany. They were forced to go home and they died in that, in that crossing of that sea. Um, that poem, the wreck of the Deutschland, was a eulogy. It was a, um, a paean, a song in, a, in praise of the sisters who suffered. In, and if you remember the poem, it was a poem which Hopkins had to deal with this question, why would God let something like that happen? So it goes right to the heart of these questions. Um, um, two of the great influences of the modern world, Freudy, Freud and Darwin, have both left their mark in the way that we think. 
in the modern world, men, man is, it's not uncommon for man to be looked at as an atom, a thing in space floating. According to Freud, man is determined by, man is a product of certain determinisms, what he called polymorphous perverse, the edible complex, that there are these instincts that are basic to man that defines his life, and they're determinative. He can't escape them, they shape his character. It's only by a process of enlightenment, that's a, it's a form of gnosis, gnosticism, by knowing it we can come out of it. Um, but Freud believed that man had no free will. Um, I mean, it, it, if you look at him, there's some strange inconsistencies and contradictions in his thinking, but Darwin believed that we were products of evolutionary forces. So that everywhere in the modern world, the, our, our view of ourselves has radically changed. Um, it's shrunken. We're a product of forces beyond our control. Um, the sacramental world as we know it, disappeared. Gone. God's out of the picture. Freud looks at God in terms of a totem response, in terms of the Father, man's response to the Father. By Father, I mean the earthly Father. Um, we saw in Sound of the Fury, we've, we've gone through three Faulkner works now. We did Go Down Moses. Um, we lined that up. My reason for wanting to do that with you is because it lines up so well with Moby Dick. Remember, um, uh, Moby Dick is the Ishmael Covenant in the north. Go Down Moses is the Isaac Covenant. So Faulkner was clearly aware of the relation between those two covenants. By writing Go Down Moses, in a sense he was complimenting Melville. In those two novels we have a, a pretty amazing comprehensive picture of American culture in the modern world. Moby Dick, Go Down Moses. And we saw the root problems in both culture, the, the sense of the wound that all men have in Moby Dick, and the sense of this sin, this attachment to the earth that makes man possessive, that makes him use other human beings, and, and the horrible sins that grow out of it. Remember in, in Go Down Moses when Ike reads the ledgers and he discovers that his, um, what is it, his grandfather, great-grandfather, had um, sex with a slave and then had sex with his daughter. And on that occasion, the daughter's mother, the slave that Old McCaslin had sex with, committed suicide. So he was either directly or indirectly responsible involved in um, crimes against those, those two female figures. Um, and you all know Ike's answer to that, his attempt to try to answer it by renouncing this, um, this possessive attachment to the land, the feeling that it's mine, you know, that to, to, to separate himself, to remove. And you know that when he did that, he had no consolation at the end because what he discovers at the end is the sin repeats itself. So, and it seems to me he's facing what Christ must have known. He went to the cross not believing that he was going to make the world better. So he gave us a way out. It, the world sin's always going to be there, even when you do good. It's something we have to bear. So, Faulkner's been very close to some of the greatest disorders in our time. In Sound of the Fury, we, we have a story of, a, of the Compton family going to hell. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Um, so, 
in the in these books. I'm surprised you all are still here. I mean, <laughs> saying these things and going, what's the matter with you guys? It's just uh, um, and at the root of every one of these modern books, less in Moby Dick, I think, but certainly in Go Down Moses and uh, Sound of Fury, um, are the effects of this, these modern ways of looking at man, the effects of these on marriage, the way men and women look at each other. It's been central to all the, all the things that we've been doing. Just uh, and, and what happens, what happens when you take the um, amour courtois, the courtly love romance tradition that grew out of the Christian Middle Ages? What happens when you take that away? Um, when those traditions are gone, and I asked this question pretty seriously a few weeks ago, what, what, what are men and women left with? How, do, how in the world do we deal with each other? If we're nothing more than atoms in a scientific world, or we're nothing more than these animal instincts with Freud or evolutionary processes, Darwin, how in the hell can we love? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, not a world, I'm not aware of a worldview after Christianity that even comes close to this. I mean, so the burdens we carry are not light. If you're a Christian, if you believe in Christ, um, it's, people look at the Christian Middle Ages like and they call them the Dark Ages. My good God. <laughs> you want to call these periods of enlightenment that we're living in? It seems to me we live in a horrible... Dark, we've seen it over and over and over again in the stories that we've been reading. If just a moment, if just for a moment we focus on men and women, what we see in the relations between men and women is once you take away those traditions, the courtly romance traditions, and remember they're, they're flawed, they have faults in them. We've looked at that. If you take those away, what do you have? Um, pride undoes both of us. It is the principal problem every one of us carries. There's a tendency in men because of their sense of honor, to idealize women or themselves. And it's really interesting for me to watch the men that we've encountered in literature, because I'm going to, you can disagree with me, but at least hear it out and make a place for it for a time, even if you disagree. Seems to me that one of the things that, um, that characterizes men fundamentally is that they tend to live in structures in their head, intellectual structures. Men are, or women are far more um, given to living in intuitive emotions, that they're more responsive, nurturing, intuitive. Men are more abstract, impersonal. Um, and when either of those things go wrong, they're curses for both of them. There's a good if we can bring them together, but on their own, they conceal real faults, both ways. What we see in the men is um, because they have this strong sense of honor, um, that when that honor is um, touched or defeated, men get discouraged. And I hope you put those words together, because men pride themselves in their... Men are supposed to be courageous, yeah? Supposed to be manly. They're supposed to show courage. When something happens to defeat that, they get discouraged, easily defeated. You know, we saw that in Go Down Moses, um, particularly with um, Lucas, you know, with everything that he was, his possessions and his wanting wealth and the gold. And we saw it particularly in uh, Jason Compson, that after the Civil War and the, the loss in the Civil War, his father 
brought home a sense of defeat. He lives with a sense of defeat. He, he drank himself to death, Quentin commits suicide. I mean, you can see the despair running through the male side of that family. You can see it in the female side and what Caddy does and what Quentin, right? I mean, they take out sexually what they do, but, but on both lines, we're watching men and women with almost nothing to live for anymore and what happens when they do. Um, where am I? In, uh, it's interesting in, um, in the mansion, in the town, we've seen how much Gavin idealizes, how much he misreads things. He's, he's such a good man, he's such a good man. But he over-idealizes, he, he does not deal with evil very well. Ratliff is more able to deal with it. Chick is learning, and it seems to me in Chick we have an image of something good happening in a male line that's answering these problems. Um, on the women's side, we've seen that in their pride, women can be possessive and catty, mean, they, don't, they cannot listen. We saw that in all the short stories, remember with Leona and um, Sister and Mrs. May. I'm missing somebody here. Oh, grandmother in um, Good Man is Hard to Find. The, the innocence with which some women can view themselves. But, um, in very few of those stories, was there anybody who took responsibility for evil? And indirectly, I put this question out from the beginning. If you take away the sacraments, what help do humans have when they're left to themselves? I mean, what we're seeing in a modern world without the sacraments, it's, it's not a very hopeful situation. In fact, it's darkened given the, the view that we start with in our world. So, hi, Lewis. So, um, in the modern world, in one sense, the world has reduced us to what's animal and natural. Now, hold on to this because this is really important. You know from our work together that both Plato and Aristotle, they're pagans, they're pagans. Both Plato and Aristotle recognized that there was something transcendent to the human soul. Aristotle says, deny that and you wish on man a horrible suffering. You give him a dark world. Those are pagans. They understood from natural philosophy that there's something, they could prove it in a, in a, at a natural level, that there's something transcendent to the human soul. Take that away and you, you deliver man over to a curse. He's left with something left less than himself. So in the modern world, we have images of man that have reduced us to what's purely animal, Freud's animal instincts. Freud has no sense of a spiritual unconscious. The unconscious for him is animal, it's instinctual. There is no such thing as a spiritual unconscious because he didn't believe in God. Take that away and, and man is reduced to what's instinctive, animal, the pygmy, remember the scene in A Good Man is Hard to Find when um, Enoch goes into the museum and he looks at that figure in the case is, to me, one of the most perfect images of what the modern man has, what we've done towards or the way we see ourselves. Was the good man Oh, Heart of the Park. Heart of the Park. Grazie, grazie. So that's, that's the modern... That's, um, so what we've been reading should be no surprise. 
the question is, what does Faulkner do with it? You know, um, in in the town, um, I think you know from my own reading of it. I think it's one of the most amazing works of modernity. I, I put it in a class with um, Lord of the Flies and Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I think I made those comparisons last week. That it gives us it gives us an, an, a, a remarkable, faithful view of the goodness of people at a respectable level. That people get along. You know, they're um, particularly in the Mallison family with Maggie and Charles. You know, I don't care for Charles very much, but um, but he, he he does a remarkable job of showing what good there. There's there's funny scenes you know, running through the book, but once you look under that respectable surface, once you get below the humor. It's as dark as any dark. Phlegm is at work and what he's doing and what, and what people are not doing, the, the, the complicity that they have in what's going on, results in Linda's death. The whole, the whole novel is going towards you. that. You. Or you, sorry. Thank you both. I sat there on both sides of me. God, suddenly I'm feeling really safe. Um, and, and protected. Um, where was I? Leads to Eula's death. And I, that's where I want to go tonight. I want to pick that up. That's where it said I'd like, I'd like to go to this. It's really a catechetical question. It, it almost doesn't have, it, it has an indirect bearing on the book, but I wouldn't, I'm not, I wouldn't deal with this question quite this way if I were teaching it, you know, at UD. Um, because this is strictly a catechetical question, but I, but I want to wait. I want to come back to that. So that's where I'd like to um, us to look. Um, when we read Melville, we became aware of a failure to Christianity in the 19th century. It looks like Christianity's failing failing here. It looks like it. I'm going to ask that. Is it in the town? Is Faulkner showing us a view like Melville's? of a Christianity that has failed to pick up its cross. Is that what's going on? How do we understand what happens with this community, particularly since we know everybody's complicit? And since we know this, I want to, I want to ask this question now. I don't want to answer it, but I want to come back to these. This is just a quick review. In, is Faulkner's representation of Jefferson City a town under judgment? And I'm saying that really Deliberately, really deliberately. When we look at Dante's Divine Comedy, we see Dante looking at the temporal city, Florence, Venice, whatever temporal city it is, his own Florence. Um, we're aware of, of a major disorder in the temporal, in the, in the worldly city, that there's something wrong, ever, deeply wrong. And one of the reasons he can reveal how deep those disorders are is because he sends them against final ends, what people are going to become by their actions. So we learn to see those disorders more clearly because we see them in their final form. All the people in hell, they're there because that's what they chose. And we saw it. What, um, the virtuous pagans, the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, the violent, and the fraudulent. Those are the major levels, right? And the violent has three levels, and the fraudulent has God, nine or ten, I can't ten, I think. Ten levels, different kinds of fraud. 
So Dante helps us to see concretely those sins that as a Catholic he believes we all have, that those are all inside of our souls. That's why we need the sacraments, that's why we um, go to confession, why we go to the Eucharist, um, because on our own there's no way we can get rid of those, because the ultimate sin is against God. That's what has to be atoned for. And none of us is perfect or Christ wouldn't have come. Um, so Dante shows us our world more deeply than almost anybody except Shakespeare and some great Wagner, well, Dostoevsky, because um, Dante sets our world off against final ends. We see what the real final effects of our actions will be. There's no teasing about, there's no excusing them, it's no explaining away, there's no enabling. He's showing us how awful they are. In the modern world, we don't set things against final ends. Right? The modern world denies final ends. The modern world doesn't believe in God. So, and, and if, you, if we're taking seriously the things I've set out here in the scientific world, it, it sees us only according to our temporal existence. We're humans, we're animals, or you know, atoms, or whatever we're going to say about them. But there's no transcendent order by which to measure our actions. Okay? Um, they're not set against final ends. In... In Moby Dick and in Faulkner, in Faulkner's story, Sound of the, Sound of the Fury and, uh, and uh, the, the Snopes trilogy, one of the questions it seems to me, at least I'm left with here in a catechetical context is, is Jefferson under judgment? Um, how do we look at them? We know that they're complicit in this sin and the ultimate outcome it is going to be Linda's going to die. I mean, the question I want to come back to is, should anybody have done something? What, what could it have been avoided? Is there, if a Catholic church had been there, would everything have turned out the same? I mean, I, those are the questions I want to get to, but not now, but... So those are the questions, the major questions that I want to get us to in a few minutes. That's... Those are some of the questions that I think are important for us to take away from the hamlet and the town. We're going to go on to, to um, the mansion now. We're going to start. That will be our final work, at least as I outlined it on modernity. We're going to do C.S. Lewis next week, um, and will be Lewis is a Christian explicitly. He's using a, a, a actually he's using a pagan allegory to reveal something about Christianity, but. Um, but Faulkner is squarely a modern. I mean, he stands in a modern tradition writing as a modern, and he's showing us a horrible world. Is Jefferson under judgment? What do we say about that? So those are what I'd like to come back to, to so we close the class on the discussion of those questions, even if that may be a lot. I'm not sure we'll see. What I'd like to do now is, is just very quickly um, go over a couple of things on the mansion just to get everybody started, okay? If, if you have any questions on the town, wait, because I'm going to come back to it in a minute and pick up these, all these questions that I just asked. Is everybody warm enough? It got cold again. Is everybody warm enough? Joan, you've got a sweater. I've got a, I've got a sweatshirt. I'm fine. You okay? You. Mary, are you all right? I'm good. Okay, if you guys need something, I brought a sweatshirt here. Okay.
Um, the mansion. The mansion begins with Mink's note, and what we discover when we encounter Mink is, um, I think, a slightly different picture, not radically different, but a slightly different picture from the picture we get in um, the Hamlet. In this book, Faulkner spends a lot of time describing what happens between Mink and Houston to make clear exactly why that murder took place. We got a hint of it in the Hamlet, but we certainly don't see it as clearly as we do here. And one of the things that seems to be important to see, it, Carl and Jeannie and I were talking about this before everybody came, but I find it hard to read the mansion without becoming aware <coughs> how much a writer grows in the writing of the book. He clearly had to have a sense of how this is going to unfold or he could have never set it up to get there. But to watch him work a chapter, to, to be inside Mink's mind while he's thinking about the motives and why he's doing one thing or another and how constantly we are in his mind relating to the world outside of him, to what Houston does, to me is amazing. Um, and it, it, becomes, it seems to me it becomes even clearer if we look at the Montgomery Ward uh, chapter because we're shown all sorts of things in that chapter that, that we don't have any clue about in the town. And I think it's for obvious reasons, because Faulkner's got a different aim in the mansion. He's got different things that he's concerned about to show Flem in a certain light, or what's happening with Flem or Montgomery Ward. So it's like a man taking what was already given and working with it and bringing out new things that he didn't see years earlier. So we're watching a writer mature, but I think we're all also watching what happens in the creative process when you're in the middle of doing something, because things come to you, and you've got to solve certain problems that didn't exist earlier, which is very much like our lives, right? I mean, don't we do that all the time? We, we find ourselves, we've got our son and their grandchildren who's visiting us again. I, I'm, I'm on the verge of telling our grandchildren that we're moving to Alaska, and I already warned them this last year. Because, <laughs> you know, we're here, here our kids are, um, we said this a couple of months ago when Jonathan and Nams had to move from their house because their, their house was flooded and they had to move into a place and the insurance ran out and so they came and lived with us for 10 days and I kept asking for your prayers because I wasn't sure we were going to survive those two weeks. Three weeks. Three, what? Three weeks. Three weeks and we're still here. That's a miracle. <laughs> Anyway, isn't that true? We always find ourselves, we tend to find ourselves in situations we couldn't have predicted and we have to somehow find our way through them and yeah. you know, do what we do. And we didn't plan on them and, and very often there we are on a cross again, not having expected to be there. And so it's, when I look at Faulkner, I, I'm just so aware that how seriously he took these human problems and and how, how, God, how selfless he was to try to get in the soul of another human being and to do justice to that person and another person who's completely different and, and still help them get to some end, some good end. It just amazes me. What we're watching in, in what happens here at the beginning of the mansion is, um, is and it's going to be made very clear in the Montgomery Ward section. 
that what Mink is dealing with is partly a failure of once again of this respectable world. The law is brutal in some ways against him. He can find no relief from it. He's a he's a tenant farmer. Um, he he lives a bare existence. He and his wife and his daughters live close to poverty, close to death. Um, their cow didn't freshen, didn't take, they have no milk this year, they have no money, virtually no money, he's got to work the land, and you know what happens. Um, um, at one point, he, when he realizes what's happened with his cow, he goes to get it off of Houston's property, and it's really interesting. This is not like um, Breaking Bad, which partly sickens me. I mean, it, it's the same modern thing. When, when you have to encounter a circumstance that may threaten your life, now, I want everybody to hear this is really serious. When you encounter a circumstance that threatens your life, if the only principle governing you, according to the modern mind, is self-preservation, then what do you do? Preserve yourself at any cost. Right? I hope that's clear, what I just said. Because when you watch so many modern things, people, they, always, they always appeal to our emotional pity. Too bad that this happened. You know, if you remember Breaking Bad, that's what happened. He's he diagnosed with, I can't remember it so long ago, but something. And on the basis of that, he began to do things to get money to help his family. How noble that was. And we find out ages later that he didn't do any of that for his family, even though in his head he started out that way. Father's homily this morning in Mass. The, the celebration of St. Agnes? Agatha. Agatha. The celebration of Agatha, Father had a, were you there, Joan, did you hear it? You no, wanna, I wasn't it, it was wonderful because he was speaking of this woman who, um, who suffered martyrdom rather than uh, be violated by a man. She wanted to protect her chastity for God and did not give in when she was threatened with rape. And Father kept quoting the passages from Christ about living unto the death, violent death of blood, giving our blood up. You know, that he talked about the importance of making choices and how often we rationalize choices because we don't want to suffer something. And interestingly, his appeal this morning <laughs> was to Dante's Paradiso. Because if, you, if those of you who've done it, you remember at the opening canto, it deals with two sisters, two women, who compromise their vows rather than suffer martyrdom. Father was making the point, Christ says unto death, he, he says so often in our world because we're so given to comfort and convenience, we don't want to suffer inconvenience. Any suffering, uh, and this is on top of a homily gave a couple of weeks ago. Um, abortion's awful when it's the effect of rape or incest or something like that, but is the answer to rape or incest murder? We justify taking another life. On, I mean, the only reason that's possible is because people don't look at an infant in the womb as human. It's not a murder. So um, what we're seeing in this opening is Mink at this level of the bear's kind of subsistence, no help, um, and it's really interesting. When he goes up to get the cow, he has the rope in his hand, he, he's, it's not a premeditated action. He goes up to get the cow and then has that moment where he, where he justifies and said, what if I just left it here? You know, it's just grazing. And, and he did it think, Houston's got all this property, he's got all these graves, all these cows, he's got all, the, all this money. 
what's going to hurt? I mean, and eventually he'll lie. I mean, once you once we make that step, it's it's easier to take the next one. But um, when we get to the Montgomery Snopes section, the third or fourth section, uh, fourth section, I think. Um, Montgomery Snopes is going to explicitly connect respectability with law for the first time, and I'm glad because it's been there all along. When we look at the Mink Snopes episode, he gets no protection from the law. If anything, the law's on Varner's side, and it's cruel. There's nothing mitigating. Um, w once that judgment is taken against him, he has to pay that, that fee for the grazing of the cow, and once he starts to do it, and Varner and Houston realize that Mink is serious about paying off this debt, they come and bring the cow back to him and say, take it. Mink refuses because, as a man of honor, he wants to work off his punishment. I mean, that's the violence that people are driven to. I, I believe it's all around us every day. Um, he refuses to take it. And what we see are, is the pride in these men and what it what it does to them. But behind it is the failure of the law. There's something inhuman to it when it gets enforced. And we know after Mink works off the fee that he goes to pick up the, the cow. And um, to me, it's, it's just one of the most painful scenes in the book. Houston and, and Varner both brought the cow to Mink earlier and said, take the cow, because they, they knew Mink was not going to harvest his, to, to prepare his field. That, it would, that he was going to make his life more miserable, and both of them worried, certainly Varner, was worried about violence, that something violent would come out of it. Houston comes with a cow. After the 37 and a half days are over, Mink has went, gone through a period without sleeping, practically, working his own land and building the fence for Varner. He goes to get the, the, the cow, and Houston says, you're not done yet. There's a dollar pound fee. I mean, how inhuman. And he has the law behind him. So in lots of ways, Faulkner is, is looking very closely at something inhuman to the law. And we've been talking about this from the very beginning. Remember from the, from the uh, Hamlet. Because um, there's nothing in the law that's present that can catch evil. What Phlegm does is always to manage to hide behind the law, respectability. It, it conceals him. It offers him umbrage, coverage. So some of the great themes, again, the failure of a respectable world, the failure of the law. One of the things, this is probably, I don't know where you guys are in your reading, but one of the things that emerges in the Mink section is towards the end of it, after Mink tries to escape and then um, has 20 years more added to his sentence, when everything looks bleak, he gets help from Linda he doesn't even know, I mean, he knows of her. One of the questions we're left with at the end of the mink section, what is Linda up to? Why would she, why would she have helped this man? Because right at that point in the story, if you remember, um, I should, I should, let me go back. Let me tell, let me summarize this very quickly if I can. You know, it ha I'm going to read some passages in a minute, but, um, Mink pastures the cow on Houston's property. Houston wants his, his fee. Um, they bring appraisers in, and Varner comes in as the law and says, you have to do this. You have to work 38 days uh, to pay off this fee. Mink does it, and 
uh, and he does it in a spirit of outrage. I mean, he's being humiliated, mistreated. Uh, the, the law is oppressive in some way. And, but he does it, and he does it ready to satisfy the law and get on with his life. So he thinks he does all this. It's a miserable situation, and at the end he brings the cow to, to Houston, and Houston says, you're not done. You owe a dollar pound fee. And it, you all know if you've read it that it's because of that pound fee that he kills him. Um, he goes to jail. We, in, the next, in, the, in the Montgomery, uh, Montgomery Snopes section, Montgomery meets with Flem, who sets him up to go to Parchment because he wants to um, trick Mink into escaping to get another 20 years added to his um, existing sentence. Because at that point, in 1923, remember Mink was, um, Mink was sent to jail in, I think, 1908 or 1909. At that point in the story, it's 1923, that's when Montgomery Ward was caught, captured in the town. So in Montgomery and Flamide, it's 1923 years, it's five years away from Mink's release. So Flem knows that he's in danger of being killed because he didn't do anything to help Mink. So he sets up Montgomery to go to Parchman to trick Mink into running away and get captured. So it's a setup. And he does, and, um, and some interesting changes take place in Mink after that when he's captured again and the 20 years get added, he begins to feel that these they, the old monster, the gods that he thinks about, um, are more and more after him, but he begins to resign himself to them until finally he accepts them and is ready to serve out his sentence. With five more years to go to serve out the 40 years, the men that he's um, bearded with, Barrack, Barrack, house with, plan to escape, and Mink wants nothing to do with it. He actually foils the escape, and um, one of the men gets killed. One escapes, and the man that does escape, Stilwell, um, holds what happened against Mink. He keeps sending letters threatening to kill him when he gets out. The warden sees the letters and wants to stop him. I hate giving this away, but it's in the, it's in the summary, so you'll read it. I think it's a pretty good summary. What happens then is really interesting because Mink reaches a point where I believe a fundamental change has taken place in that man. If you remember through the whole section, he keeps musing on this very impersonal, cold, detached sense of the them, or old, what he calls old monster. It's this Calvinistic, Protestant sense of this impersonal God that's um, cold, detached, mean in some ways. But Mink, Mink has a strong sense of justice for himself, and he believes if he will just satisfy justice himself, that, that this God, this they or he or almost, will be man enough to do the same himself. So, and it's on that trust that he goes forward. Well, something happens late with five more years to go. We see that Mink is changing. I don't want to go into, I don't, I don't think we'll have time, we won't have time tonight, but next week I'll, I'll go into the homing section more thoroughly, but changes. Um, there's a very, it's a beautiful lyric passage where the crop begins to be good and something happens to Mink in his relationship to the land. Shortly after that, they get these letters from Stillwell after the escape, and at one point 
Mink becomes convinced that this old monster, this they, has learned to read the inside of his heart and knows Mink. And if he'll just wait, that he will do whatever he has to do to take care of Steelwell. When the warden hears that, the warden laughs at Mink. And he begins to get nervous because he really believes that if that god will do something for Mink, maybe the warden himself is in trouble, so he better watch it. Now, people can laugh at Mink. You can say he's got this sense that God's looking out for him, but something happens. And shortly after that, they get news that the church, notice it's a church that Stillwell was hiding in, collapsed, and killed Stillwell. Now, either these are strange coincidences, and you know, I mean, it's absolutely unreasonable to think if coincidences pile on top of coincidences, it's just coincidence. Because what happens when things begin um, to move, when coincidences pile up, they suggest a purpose, and purpose always means an intelligence. So it's seems to me it's impossible to read these things when coincidences begin multiplying and not begin to wonder, at least wonder, if something isn't going on with Holmoster. And, and it happens at a time when Mink's whole attitude towards the gods is changing. Shortly after that, the, the judge says, or I mean the warden says, you're free to go. Um, but only when you get a petition and you have to have somebody close to your family. And it's, a, it's wonderful again because there's the old monster testing Mink again. It looks like everything is going to go against him. And he says, in that case, I might as well wait out the five years. Because the lawyer's gone, there's nobody in his family, there's nobody to get a petition from. And then suddenly, five months later, five or six months later, a petition arrives from who else? Linda Snopes, whom he has no tie with. So a couple of things are happening. One is something's happening with Mink's ties to the gods. And the other is, Linda Snopes is suddenly figuring in this story in a strange way. So as we read forward, we've got to keep those two things in our mind. Is there a God in this world, this modern world, where gods don't exist? And what is Linda up to? When she comes home from the war, she is a modern woman. She's a welder. You know, she's lost her hair. And she's doing things women don't do. For a woman to be a welder in this southern culture was unheard of. Everything she does flies right in the face of all these traditions. What's going on with Linda? So that's where we are in the story. Okay. Last thing. We've been talking about the importance of respectability as a defining principle of a community for the whole of this Jefferson community. But we've been watching a small community form unto itself. Ratliff, Gavin, Gowan, Chick, and anybody sort of closely related to them. Something's happening. In the mansion, we're going to watch that same community at work involving other people. Is there another kind of community coming together outside of this respectable community? Um, what are our, how are we to look at what these people are doing? Linda's going to pay, play a major role in it. I don't want to get into it because I don't want to give it away, but we've got a group of people who are beginning to do something that's, that's like what we saw in the town. 
Um, but it's going to be involved. <laughs> it's going to be complicit in taking a life, in a murder. So, how are we to look at these communities? Is that clear? Wonderful question. Two of the great, two of the great questions to ask of this book. Faulkner writes it, I hope you all see, Faulkner writes it like a detective story. What will happen to Mink Snopes? Will anybody be able to bring him down? It seems we were reading to find out if this really evil guy is going to be brought down. And if he is brought down, who's going to bring him down? Phlegm. Or, sorry, Phlegm. And the other is, is there a God? Is there meaning in this, this world? Um, and what's Linda's place in it as a modern woman? Um, remember, her mother, there was not a place for this young girl's mother in this southern respectable town. Her answer to the problem was to take her life. At the end, Linda is immediately, directly, actively involved in what happens. I don't want to go into it. What I should do is, is cancel class for the next two weeks and make sure you all read it. So I'm not giving anything away. Because it's a wonderful read. And there aren't pages of run-on sentences. <laughs> okay, let me, let me stop there. I want to go back to the question. But anything on, so I want to take up the questions on the town. But before we do, any questions on the opening of the mink section, the, the mansion? Any, any questions or thoughts? Or, I'm glad to take a few minutes before we go back to the town. Huh? 7.45. I was in such a rush to get out of the house because I was late today. I forgot my watch. Karen, I'm counting on you. Okay. I'm here for you. I'm grateful. <coughs> you said we were going to do C.S. Eliot next C. S. week. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Lewis. Not next week. What? Next no, no, after. And what's the name of it? After. Um, Till we, we have faces. What? Till we have faces. Okay. I'll send out a note, Marcy. I'll send. Yeah. Oh, oh. Books have been ordered. I know. They're ordered. Oh. I'll let you know when they get here. Oh, okay. Okay. Because they should be, they I need to be here in. I something I was already supposed to have. Mm -mm, okay. No. Right. Marcy ordered them. I've got to talk with her. They may be here, or we still may be waiting, okay. but we should have them shortly. C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. C.S. Lewis is one of the great apolo Christian apologists of the 20th century. Truly great. One of the, one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. Um, a teacher at Cambridge and Oxford. Um, a writer at the Narnia. He, he's most known for, most popularly known for the Narnia, but his apologetic writings, his defense of Christianity are at a popular level have, have had such an influence in the modern world. Just a truly a, a great friend of Christ. Just a great... Yeah. Lois, did you have something? I was just going to say, I've already uh, um, about probably three-fourths almost to the end of the mansion. And it's really a faster read oh, yeah. because it's, it's, like you said, it's fleshing out already stuff that we already yeah. know. Yeah. And Yep. It's really good. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And it is much easier to read. Yeah. It's linear, too. Even if we go back, it's part of a forward moving. And it's easier to follow. You know, when we're in Sound of the Fury, when we're in 
Benji's and Quentin's and Jason's head, we're going back and forth and we're doing it in a radical way. But you're right, we've got a backstory that we know better, so when we go forward, we're so much more aware of what happened when and why, and so, yeah, it's a wonderful book. Wonderful book. Anybody else with questions or Tracy? How are you finding it? Have you are you on? Have you started? I finished the section. Did you? Mm -hmm. What's your response? Well, I mean, I guess I felt kind of calm at the end of it versus all the angst in these other. Yeah, because. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I should, I should. So, now that your soul is quieted, how are you going to? F I can't give this away. Never mind. <laughs> okay, sorry, I should not have done that. I can't tell you how much I'm biting. What's the biting my tongue, tongue here right now? Because because I <laughs> I better stop. Let's go back to what I'd like to do right now for whatever time we have left is go back to these questions that I asked last week that to me are pressing and of a catechetical nature, okay? In the, um, there are a number of passages that I want to take a look at if I can find them in the, can you take a look at the town for a second? If you don't have it, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, Turn to three, I think it's 356, yeah, 356. No, I'm sorry, three, three, three twenty-seven. I want to try to set this up for our questions if I can. It's at here that Gavin has this remark on the third of the way down the page. He says he, um, he was going to go out and, and have a snack with Mr. Garway, and he says, um, 
or so I thought, because you simply cannot go against a community. Now hold on to that line. He and Garraway have this exchange, and we learn that Mr. Garraway was the first one to withdraw money from the bank and transfer it to another one. And he did that in his outrage at what was going on with Flem and, I mean, uh, De Spain and Eula, okay? Because of his moral indignation, he couldn't support it. I mean, I think lots of us do that. There are some movies I won't go to because of the movie stars involved. I'm just, I'm so upset with, you know, some of their lives that I won't, I won't support them with a movie. Um, sometimes we have to do something as a way of expressing, even if it's never known, Dave Garraway takes out his money. But then he takes it, he puts it back, and it leaves Gavin wondering why he did it. Um, and on page 328 he says, speaks to this effect, and Garraway gets upset with him towards the bottom of the page. Is it so that Will Varner came into town this morning? Yes, I said. So he caught them. Now he was trembling, shaking, standing there behind the worn counter, which he had inherited from his father, racked with tins that goes on. This is so upsetting to him that he can't speak about it. He's shaking. It means that much to him. And notice that it's happening when, when um, Gavin is um, bringing the problem out. And we're in a world in which nobody does that. Nobody's done it before. Uh, <clears throat> down at the bottom, not the husband, the father himself had come in and catch them after 18 years, but you put your money back, I said. You took it out at first when you just heard it secondhand about the sin and shame and outrage. Then you put it back. Was it because you saw her to at last? <laughs> Calvin cut the reasons he comes up with. Um, that that did it, seeing Eula, um, then you put it back. Was it because you saw her? She came out here one day into your store and you saw her yourself, got to know her to believe that she at least was in it. Was that it? It's not. I mean, it's not the reason. I knew the husband, he said, cried almost, holding his voice down so the Negroes couldn't hear what we, he was talking about. I knew the husband. He deserved it. So he's angry at Flem. Um... Go down. Why, I said, why again today? She must go, he said. They, they must both go, she into Spain too. But why? Go down more. Adultery in the very top stratum of a white man's town and bank. Why only now? It was one thing as long as the husband accepted it. It became another when somebody, how did you put it, catches them, blows the gaff. They become merely sinners then, criminals then, lepers then. He's upset. Gavin's upset. I hope everybody see. Gavin's upset because he thinks he did it because now it's out in the open. It was always a sin, whether it's known or not. Um, so what seems to be at issue for him is now that it's in the open, it becomes something it wasn't before. He's half accusing him. They become merely sinners, then criminals, then lepers, then nothing. For this is remember, Gavin has been the only man in the town ready to come to Eula's defense. He's the one who grabbed the Spain at the ball and got beat up for it. He sent flowers. He's the one that brought attention to it and made everybody angry. <laughs> so at least he tried to do something. And we get part of the reason here. They became merely sinners then, criminals then, lepers then, nothing for constancy, nothing for fidelity, nothing for devotion, 
unpoliced devotion, 18. That is, she didn't go around whoring herself. It was an affair. And even if it was illegal, Gavin sees some good there. And we've already talked about how understandable it is she would have had an affair with Flemish, her husband. Um, is that all you want? He said, I'm tired. I want to go. Garrett does not want to deal with this. He wants to get out of there. He is really uncomfortable with all of this. So um, he doesn't give a reason. Sorry? So Gary doesn't give a, a reason. Sorry? Yeah, he knows. That's why he took the so His reason was to, because he thought that Flynn didn't deserve it. Well, he took his money out because he, he because thought of the because of the affair. But then he realized that Flynn probably deserved to have his wife have an affair on him. <laughs> so he decides to go put his money back. Yeah, because Blim is not a very nice man, and he could understand why. That's an understatement. So, for Garraway, it didn't have anything to do with adultery, and whether or not it was out in the open. Um, I think, I think partly it does. I, I don't think anybody can, I don't think anybody can deny it or ignore it. It's part of it. It's but a complicated. He, he, didn't, he didn't give a response to indicate that, did he? What are you well, looking at, Mary? When you oh, when he he says you were one of the first ones to pull the money out, and then he asks, "Well, why did you put it back in?" Right. And he says, "I knew the husband." Right. And he goes, "I knew the husband. He deserved it, meaning he deserved right. fair." What I what I never quite got was why Linda saying if something should happen and this inheritance comes to me, uh, my my father can get part, why that just blew? Why she gave up her inheritance? Well, yeah, why did that just make everything blow up? What What was it about her, and maybe everybody else understands it, but why? He gave Flem the power, didn't he? Well. He gave him the capital, he could, he could control things then. Yes. He, because well, he had you Okay, so, so unless he wrote his granddaughter out of his will, he could never protect the, you know, he could never keep it away from Unless Varner wrote him out? Unless, unless yeah. Varner wrote Linda out of his mm -hmm. will. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that was the only way he could protect Snow from getting his money. And Let's see if we can get this out. Does anybody want to make a stab here to Mary's question? I don't know why that blew everything up. I thought that with the turnover of her rights to um, any inheritance, oh, yeah. which is bank shares, through her mother. Right, but her mother would have to die. Right, exactly. Wait, where are you guys talking about? You're talking about Linda's writing the will. Yeah, so he, she goes off to college. Okay, so he's really nice to her and pretends to be really nice to her. And mm -hmm. somewhere he has to plant in her mind that he's worried at the end of the day if something should happen to the mother he won't get any of the Varner inheritance. He's, right. He somehow has communicated this to Linda. So the second Linda gets... Wait, communicated what to Linda? Linda, that if her grandfather passes away, the money is going... I don't think so. Well, somehow, wait, wait, hold why on, did yeah. she go wait, in well, and... Wait, hold on. Hold on. Doug, do you want to take a stab at this? Or guilt trip, and then when she got to college, she... I don't, I don't remember anything being said in the text that... that gives us that sense. We're, we're made aware increasingly by the narrators that Flem is reaching a crisis point. 
and he knows because the the secret has been kept so long and Linda's getting older and it's going to be harder and harder to to protect his interest with her um, so when it's when she's younger he doesn't have to worry but now that she's getting closer he knows it's going to be harder and harder to keep her from being married and um, if he does he's going to lose his could lose any inheritance and the share in the stocks so he has he ha, he, he does all these nice things for Linda and Eula to win her over, and then at that one point, which is a real turning point in the story, he gives her permission to leave for college, because she hasn't gone away, she's at that um, academy. And there's that scene, it's horrible to watch, because she goes daddy, daddy, and she falls in him in gratitude. She has no clue, he's, and he's not put out anything before, he just says, you can, you can go. So she's in debt to him, in her own mind. Right. Um, but at that point, Flem knows that unless he gets control of it, he will lose everything. So he has her after that write out her will to him, to, right? Yeah. 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 And Flem, at that point, chooses to break it all because he knows it's reaching a crisis point and and to open up it in a way that will favor him. So he takes the note out to Varner, and when Varner finds out. Weird. I mean, that's another thing, but he comes into town in rage and has them all gathered together and tells them to get out of town. But why would he blow up the affair at that point in time? Why would he not start working on Linda himself to say, you know, your dad's not a really good guy, and he's really not your dad, and you really shouldn't give all my money or something. I mean, this seemed like, why did that make the whole affair blow up, the fact that the daughter was willing to give an inheritance to the father? Because I think, yeah. I mean, what you're, what you're describing ask for something that I think it, Flem Snopes is a really shrewd man and I don't believe he would have done any of the things that you're suggesting because he knows they would have finally been turned against him. The best thing for him to have done is what he did to get Linda to write that note and, and keep himself out of it as clearly as he can. Let's, let's get back to the story because I want to, I want to, here, Caraway is outraged, right? And um, and I want to read this. I think I read this before when Ratliff is clearly getting angrier and anger. We've got to do this quickly because we almost have no time. Um, he says, no, no credit for 18 years of you know, fidelity and all this stuff. And we can, we can see Caraway wants to get out. He does not want to deal with these, does not want to talk about it. Ratliff keeps, or I mean, Gavin keeps pressing it, and then he says at the bottom of 3.29, though if anything, the next one would be worse, the next president will probably be a Governor Smith, and you know who Governor Smith is, of course, a Catholic, because nothing could be worse than being a Catholic, and if, if Carraway thought that this was bad, then what would he think about a worse situation? The scene ends with Carraway saying, middle of the page, 3.30, they must go, they must go, both of them. And it's at that point we have that really long, elegiac passage of Gavin looking at Jefferson in this melancholic way. Remember, this is during that period where the schools are closed, the kids are out of school, and something's about to happen. And we get this beautiful musing on this community, and then shortly afterwards um, we'll get the news that Linda has taken her life. Two other passages. Take a look at... You, sorry, page 356. I want to do this quickly. We've got to get to this question. 
Süs. Gavin has already made it clear in his chapter um, that the town is divided. Um, uh, that half the town wants the town the secret covered up, half the town wants it exposed. Um, but he says on 356, this is Chick again. Um, they're all <laughs> this is sad. Alec Sanders in the middle of page 356 and some of the other people are gawking in anticipation of Linda arriving to want to see the expression on her face. I mean, it's, it's sad that that's what would draw people to her because her mother's just committed suicide. Down at the bottom. So now they even forgave Mrs. Snopes for the 18 years of carnal sin and now they could even forgive, they could even forgive themselves for condoning adultery by forgiving it by reminding themselves, one another too, that if she had not been an abomination before God for 18 years, she wouldn't have reached the point where she would have to choose death in order to leave her child a mere suicide for a mother instead of a whore. Now, hold on to that. So now they even forgive Mrs. Stokes for the 18 years of carnal sin. Now they could even forgive themselves for condoning adultery by forgiving it, by reminding themselves that if she had not been an abomination before God for 18 years, she wouldn't have reached the point um, where she'd have to choose death. The last thing, going over to um, 363. Linda's committed suicide, everybody knows it. Linda comes to Gavin's office. Eula committed suicide. Linda comes to Gavin's office to find out if her father was in fact her father. And she says, she comes in, don't touch me. She's angry. She needs an affirmation here. She wants to know about her dad. And she's looking to him, because Gavin, because she trusts him. She says, don't touch me. She takes his hands, puts them to her breast. She is clearly emotional. And then she says, when I thought he wasn't my father, I hated her and Manfred both. She describes watching their faces. But now that I know he's my father, it's all right. I'm glad. I want her to have love to have been happy, I can cry now, because she heard Gavin say, swearing, that Flem was in fact her father. Now what's going on with Linda? Is everybody clear in this when she says, when I thought he wasn't my father, I hated her and Manfred both. But now that I know he is, I'm glad I want her to have loved. Is everybody clear in that? Is there, you want to say it clearly, Doc? Everybody seems to be clear on it. Is everybody okay? No. <laughs> <laughs> One eyes. So, uh, um, go ahead. I just, um, if he's not her father, her mother's a boy. If he is her father, then she knows that he doesn't have any um, feelings for her, so she's glad that she at least was loved by the same. If he wasn't her father, she hated Manfred and, and Eula because if he wasn't her father, then he did a very generous thing by marrying to give her a legitimate name. 
Remember that scene where she throws herself and says, Daddy, Daddy. So she's, in her heart, she's in debt to him. To think that a man would have done that and to be treated that way by her mother by having an affair makes her angry. But she's heard from Gavin that he is her father and she believes him. And so she says, um, but now that I know he is my father, it's all right, I'm glad. I want her to have loved. So even if, even if he was her father, she knows that it was a loveless marriage, that he didn't love yeah. Eula, and she's glad that now she can claim him as a father, but she also knows her mother at least knew love. Even if she never received love from the man, she's glad that she could have known love. Now, I want to, with all that out, but particularly that passage about the abomination, when Gavin and Linda meet, they say she's lost, Linda's lost. And then shortly afterwards, when Gavin refuses to marry Linda, Eula commits suicide. So that's where we are. So my question, my question last week is this. Um, Linda commits suicide. Eula commits suicide. Is, did she have to do it? Is there anything anybody else could have done differently that could have led to a different outcome? That's a whole set of questions. For, for example, when Varner comes to town, is there anything else he could have done? We've been talking about a town, a Protestant town, that's complicit with this crime, this suicide, and, and complicit in what's gone on for 18 years. So that's one question, and I want to tackle that first. The other is, would it have made a difference with a Catholic church in town? And I'm allowing, there would have been a lot of Catholics that would have done the same thing. Catholics do the same thing. We are complicit in things all the time. But would it, would it have made a difference, and if so, why? Take the first question first. Could anybody have done anything differently? Should Maggie is a good woman. She's a good woman. Can you see her going to Eula? Does, can you see anybody in this town going to Eula or to Spain before Varner? And when Varner does it, Varner comes in like a piece of dynamite and says, blows it all up, get out of town, you know, go away. What's wrong here? What's wrong in this community? Well, in my opinion, Eula had committed a corporal sin, a sin of commission, you know, bodily sin of adultery. But the people in the town were committing a much worse, Jesus says your spiritual sins are worse than your bodily sins. Except you know that adultery is a mortal sin, at least in our church. Yes, so it's but not just the, the presumption, the failure to be charitable, the the um, the abdication on the part of the town—it's much worse than adultery. What could they? What should they have done? Give it. Can you flush it out, Linda? What? Give an example. What could anybody? Should anybody have done? I mean, they should have gone to pray with her and to take her back into the community and say, we're just as bad as you are. We just hide ours. Let's say somebody does that. Because do people tend to do things if there's no teeth behind it? If somebody had come and just said, let's pray, would that have been enough to get Eula out of that relationship to go to prayer? Maybe. <laughs> anybody else? Could anybody have done anything differently? Or should they have done anything differently? Eula was not bright enough to do anything. <laughs> from, from the beginning, remember her behavior from the time she was born. She wouldn't even walk anywhere. 
And she had no thought of what's right and wrong. In my opinion, she but did you, not. You know that she knows that what she's doing is wrong. We know that from her discussion with Gavin, that Linda's lost and she's asking her to marry. My, but my question is, could anybody in the town have done anything different with the situation? So. Should Varner have done anything differently? Well, it's going to come from someplace, and that's where it'd have to be from her father, from Varner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he wasn't exactly an exemplary model, though. Well, <laughs> yeah. first but true enough. But I mean, if, I mean, yeah. But if he it's, was promiscuous himself. He was yeah. very. Right. That's what I don't understand. It's like he probably knew all this was going on too. But, but although, wait, 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 wait. We don't. From the book, stay with the book because the book gives no indication that that's yeah. what we know. What. The book lets us know is that he doesn't, and he's right. outraged, and right. so... Okay, but he is taking one action, the only thing is he wasn't really completing the entire set of actions that he probably should have taken. He was only dealing with the issue with regard to Flem and, and the estate, and he, his interests were clearly selfish then, and really not emotionally directed towards child. So, I mean, that's... Wait, 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 wait. wait. Yeah. Um, because he didn't deal with... Flem and the estate. I well, well, we've got here. He I've got deal with Flem and the estate. If I can, quick here, the fundamental the fundamental concern that Dante had at the center of the Divine Comedy was bringing law and mercy together. A failure to do either one of those is going to be a failure against the other. Mercy without law is disastrous. It's an enabling. The law without mercy is cruel. We've been here before. Let me give a let me give my I mean partly an answer. It seems to me what and I'm I'm with Bob partly on this is that Varner as the father is as the man of authority. And by the way, does the the name Will Varner suggest anything to you guys? He's all Will and he's all varnish. He's all surface. That's Will Varner. He's all power. Truly, I mean those names mean something. That Will Varner. Um, he should have come into town and he should have confronted the couple that said leave the bank now or else, and offered some mercy. I mean, what they do would have been, see, the thing to do, to hold to a law and give an ultimatum, say, you cannot do this anymore. Because we have to hold the law. People who don't confront the laws and the boundaries they make, open them up. It, it's an enabling. He should have, wait, 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 because we go, sorry, sorry. He should have come in and said, stop this now, or leave the bank. Give an ultimatum to give them a re great enough to find her. I mean, this goes to your, I hope you, to give them a reason great enough to stop, but offer a mercy. Now, here's where it gets hard. Is there any indication from anything in this book to suggest anybody gives mercy anywhere? Abomination? Go back to that line if you can. What's the attitude of this town on 356? If this is the way the town looked at looked at the at the uh, at the affair, so now they even forgive Mrs. Snope, even forgive themselves for condoning adultery by forgiving it by reminding themselves that if she had not been an abomination before God, if the way you look at people is that they are an abomination in this sin, how readily is your soul disposed to forgive them if you ever say stop and go on to forgive? Christ said to the, to the woman, go and sin no more. That's the woman in adultery. 
You have to stop your sins, and there has to be something great enough to say, stop it. At the same time, there has to be a mercy. Just for a second, go to the question about a Catholic community. Could a Catholic, if a Catholic community had been present, is there any reason for supposing something else might have happened? The, I, this is all hypothetical, and I know, but... If the other half of the town that we talked about, half the town said they ought to you know, get out of town, and the other half said they didn't. But if half of the town would have voted with their feet on their deposits in Flem's bank, it probably would have had more of an impact than if Chesterfield as one man did that and then put his money back. If you have a merchant in town and you don't like the way they conduct business, you stop doing business with them, don't you? You don't go to the movies if the movie starts, right? Go to my question about the church. If a church has a sacramental order, is there any reason for supposing that that more would be expected, more would be asked of that community than a community without the sacraments. That's partly what I'm asking. Tracy, I so. what? I Go. I mean, explain what, where, why. Well, I mean, I, well, let's see. I do think about this. If you have people in your community who are receiving the body of Jesus Christ, then they can't help but be, have, they're nurtured by that. And bolstered by that and um, given a charge from that. And so if you take that seriously, you do go out in the world and try to be... Try to wait, 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 sorry? Live up to that or enact that. You know, How? Can you, can you flesh it out? How? What should somebody have done? Specifically in this situation? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, if you were her friend... Mm, good. If you were a friend, what? Let's predicate that for a second. If you were a friend, what do you do to somebody in that situation? You say, I know what's going on, and you know that it's wrong. And? and what do you do? What do you do that puts teeth behind it, that makes it clear you can't do that anymore, right. and still offer mercy? Is going insane, you have to stop. Enough. If you had a Catholic church in the community, it going. would have been hidden there. What they're doing would have been hidden even more. More? Yes. I would hope not, but here, here's my, yes, I mean, how about this? You go to a friend whom you love and say, like um, Barner going and saying, do this or you leave. Your friends, you say, I love you, mm. uh, but we can't be friends anymore if oh, you continue gosh. to do this. Yeah. And then say, um, if you do this, because what you're doing is harmful to yourself, to a community, um, and I would hope that you wouldn't, and um, if you need help, I'm here, or I mean, whatever you do, you bring the law and the teeth of it Remember Dante in the, in the Divine Comedy, he said, when the Pope becomes the state political leader, he gives an image of the, 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 the cow chewing the cud. That if you give the Pope temporal power because he's afraid to use it, things get soft. That power properly belongs to who? Caesar. 
because Caesar is the one who enacts laws. The church has the good of the soul in mind. Those two have to work in concert. When you start undermining the laws of things, what happens to people? The whole problem is bringing law and mercy together. People have to have a courage to come out and risk something and offer a mercy. Do one or the other, you're gone. And I'm, I'm suggesting here, if a Catholic church had been present, I would, I would hope that somebody would have the courage to make that risk with the help of the sacraments. And remember, remember, a cat, remember that look at the, the, the nature of religion here in this town. It's a theocracy. Mrs. Varner chooses the ministers. Um, it's, it's completely politically run. There is no temporal order that holds on to a sacrament higher that gives the people the strength they knew to do the need to do the hard things. That exists in a Catholic Church because it stands for the salvation of the soul. It's a higher form of authority. Look, Christ gave Peter the keys. He also said to the disciples, go out, get rid of demons, do this. He gave the church an extraordinary authority on earth. Why? Because that's what humans are fighting. What's lacking in this community is a sacramental order and the authority that goes with it. Somebody who's willing to risk with Christ, the law, and offer mercy with it. Or at least that would be my, that would be my, and we have to stop. I'm sorry. We, we will pick this up next week for the anybody. So, what? The town is condemned as it stands. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I asked that question, but. Sorry to cut this up, but because we I, we've got to get out of here. But I'm glad to pick this up next week when we start. So any questions you have, bring them next week.